0: Welcome to Women's Hoops and Talks, the What Podcast, where we are
1: elevating the voice of women in basketball. I'm Tara. And I'm Cassidy. Thank you so much for listening today. We have an amazing show coming up. We have Miran Fader, staff writer at Bleacher Report, and she's also written for the Orange County Register, ESPNW.com, Sports Illustrated Doc, or er, Sports Illustrated and Slam. Welcome to the show!
2: My gosh, thanks for having me on! I'm excited!
1: So we usually get things started with a little bit of an icebreaker. And and because it's summer, it's hot out, I was thinking, if you could have any basketball player DJ your summer pool party, who would you pick?
2: Okay. That's the easy call. Liz Cambage. Shameless plug for <laughs> for my story that came out today on the Aces. Um, oh my gosh. She's like everything that I aspire to be as a woman. Confident, energetic, fun. She's awesome.
0: That would be a really awesome. I mean, just having her at the party would be amazing, but oh, also I- like setting the tone with the music and all that good stuff. Um, for me, because I'm like super unhip and I don't know what makes a good DJ and I would probably pick like the oldest NBA player (laughs) (laughs) because it's more likely that I would know the songs that he was going to play. Um, you know, there's been a lot of talk on Twitter randomly about Andre Miller, um, recently over the last couple of days. So I bet you Andre Miller would like throw down some good old nice classics that I could really get into at a pool party. Wow. Making a return. Love I, know, it. I know, I know he's not, you know, a current player, but, you know, this is sort of like we should like the subtitle of this podcast should have something to do with like Andre Miller tribute or something.
1: I mean, I'm into it. <laughs> I'm into it. <laughs> How about you, Cassidy? Okay. So one of my first thoughts was definitely Liz Cambage, but I'm going to mix it up and go, since I'm having a pool party, it's going to have to be in Portland right now. I'm going to go with Dame Dalla. DJing a party. I think it could be, a, it, it could be fun. Dame can... I'll just let Dame throw whatever party he wants to throw, really. I, th- I, mean, that I think sounds that sounds amazing. amazing. Yeah. Yeah. And then if he
0: brought the baby, I would totally play with the baby. Oh, my gosh. The baby could DJ my party and I'd be thrilled. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Love that baby. So I'm interested. How it did – can you tell us a little bit how he got into basketball and yeah. writing?
2: Yeah, definitely. Um, I was a basketball player before I was a writer. I kind of spent my whole life as the basketball player me. And um, I started in fifth grade. I, I just saw a bunch of guys like heading towards the court and I was just sort of like mesmerized by this like mass exodus of boys going there. And I was like, where are they going? I, I want to go. I don't know. Something just carried me over there. And I I picked up a basketball and it was just like love at first sight. You know, it was just like this is who I want to be. This is what I want to do. Um, ended up playing um, pretty much for the next, like, 15 years, and um, I played my first year in college, and uh, now I sort of have transitioned becoming a sports writer. You know, I knew that basketball was something I wanted in my life. I knew it was still, you know, a huge part of me that I wasn't ready to let go, and so I just thought, okay, let me combine both of these passions, because writing was always a passion, too. So now that I have them together, I feel complete.
0: What position did you play?
2: Okay, so I'm like borderline 4'11", but I um, I always tell people I played center because that's just my dream. But uh, no, I was a point guard. <laughs> I was a point guard, but I love to shoot it. So I was just unfortunately height challenged. But
0: <laughs> did you have like a signature move?
2: Oh, man, I was so into like the hezi and just try to like blow by people and like pull up at the elbow. Like that was my favorite thing.
0: That's awesome.
1: So for those people who out there who might not be familiar with you or your work, can you describe your writing uh, style and what kind of writing you do?
2: Yeah, um, I do long form writing. Most of my pieces are about like 4000 words. And um, what I really want to be is a storyteller, somebody that can write stories about sports that are more about the people playing the sport than the actual sport. So if you know nothing about sports, you can still get into my work. Um, yeah, I just, I focus on the human aspects of it. Uh, I write about all sports and, uh, I'm lucky to be employed by Bleacher Report. So that's sort of my summary.
0: So we each picked out a couple of articles about yours uh, of yours that we wanted to talk about, um, and so I want to start off by asking you what it was like to write the uh, the Lamello show. So for people who haven't read it, the Lamello show was um, you wrote it in two thousand eighteen, and as far as I understand it, you spent time in Lithuania following the Ball family, and in particular, kind of focusing the article focuses on. La- Lamello's experience playing in the Lithuanian League and the Big Baller League, I think, is there was also a, um, a special like tournament, I guess, that was put on by the Ball family. So I found that a super fascinating look at the Ball family because we'd seen them a lot, but you really like spent time with them on a completely different part of the world. So you know, my first question about it is just: where did you get the idea uh, to do that? And what was it like being in Lithuania with the Ball family?
2: I mean, it was the opportunity of a lifetime I'll never be able to repay Bleacher Report for. Um, I have to thank Christina Tapper and Matt Sullivan. They just asked me to go. They were like, hey, uh, we think we should do this profile. We want to send you. Um, part of it was because I profiled Lonzo Ball, his um, older brother that used to be on the Lakers prior to that but so I sort of had some sources within their circle but part of it was just like flat out crazy because I wasn't <laughs> a staff I was a freelancer for them and I was 26 and um you know everyone was like why are they sending you but um no it was such a phenomenal experience it was really hard um I'm a Cali girl I wasn't used to winter uh let alone in a foreign country driving in a foreign country driving in snow like all of these things were so new to me and um, it, it, was kind of like going through the experience as LaMelo was because he too was from California. And so, um, I mean, it was a journalist dream as far as like watching something happen and unfold as this family takes over this basketball league and it's kind of a sham and the boy is being treated like crap. And, you know, it's not this kind of rainbow picture that they're portraying to everyone back at home. So, you know, I just had to tell myself throughout this time, you're going to soak up as much as you can. Um, tell tell the right story and, and trust your work. But it was really hard.
0: Did you have access to talk directly with the family? It seemed like the writing mostly was your observations of it. So what was like collecting the information that you were going to write about? Like,
2: yeah, I mean, it was really hard because I went over there with the intention of following Mello for a month, literally a month. And, you know, their agent sort of agreed with it. And then On the second day, I interviewed LeVar. He was just in the lobby, and I just went up to him. And then um, the third day, LeVar said something to another reporter that went viral in America. He made like disparaging comments about Luke Walton, and so the family pulled all the plug on Access. They were like, you're not getting near Mello. You're not talking to any of us anymore, even though it wasn't me that did the story. It was another reporter. But all the other reporters went home. I stayed <laughs> and um yeah so I stayed for three more weeks and uh I did not have access to my main character even though I saw him every single day cuz I snuck in the gym and I convinced like the security guards to let me just watch practice every day. I really played up the short girl thing like oh like I'm nobody like whatever. Um sometimes you got to do what you got to do. And um yeah and then I just so I did have a front row seat to everything but I didn't have a translator so I had to like find the players that sp- did speak English, and then have them serve as translators. So it was really tough. I mean, I was way out of my comfort zone.
0: Oh my god, you're so brave.
2: <laughs> <laughs> I just had a, I just had an amazing editor. Let's just, let's not even. It's, it's all her, Christina Tapper, like pushed me through.
0: Can you, can you talk a little bit more about, about what, how your editor supported you? I assume she was from distance, right? Yeah.
2: Yeah. So she's in New York and, you know, at the time, like we're the only woman there, um, you know, working in in the editorial team there. And, um, she called me every day and was just like, how is your mental health? Are you Are you eating? Because I wasn't really eating. Like I was like going through a lot. There was just not a lot of food and she was just there for me and cared for me as a human. And, um, you know, there were things that happened that were really scary. Um, you know, traveling while being a woman reporting while being a woman, you're vulnerable in a lot of ways that your male counterparts aren't And every time something would happen, she would just know what to say. And I I mean, I'm just so grateful.
0: Wow, that's that's really intense. I mean, one of the interesting things I thought about the piece was you really set the tone of it being kind of bleak and dark. You had some video that you took of the snowy surroundings and it just it was interesting because on the one hand, it kind of looked like any town USA in the winter, but you know, you know, the houses look similar, the snow looks the same everywhere you go. Uh, but at the same time, it just had a, a different feel to it because it was in a different part of the world. And I didn't know you didn't even have a translator. So you had to figure all that out. How I mean, how did you steal yourself to do all of this? It, you know, what motivated you to keep going?
2: I mean, it was really bleak. It was really dark. It was so hard. But it was because like, you know this has been my dream for so long like in a way basketball in a way sports writing and i prior to this i was at the orange county register for 4 years and you know that ended and we had layoffs and unfortunately like i became a full-time freelancer after that um now i'm hired by bleacher but during this time i wasn't and so this was like my shot this was like this was like the mother of all opportunities the mother of all tryouts and so even though i had written for br for a year and a half you know, leading up to this, this, I felt like my dream was on the line and yeah, everything was going wrong that could possibly go wrong with the story. I didn't have access anymore to the family that I'm covering, (laughs) you know, like everything was terrible. And I had to just say like, how bad do you want this? Like, you know, there's a lot of people that want to be writers, but there's not a lot of people who like when push comes to shove and you're put in a position and you have to perform, Like you just you find another gear and you're just like I I have to perform. And and that doesn't mean that I didn't mess up and I didn't have, you know, lots of drafts before it became the story that it was, but I was just like extremely determined to fight for my job that I wanted so so badly. All these people believed in me, sent me over there, paid like thousands and thousands of dollars for me to be there. I couldn't come back with a weak story like I couldn't not measure up. And so I did feel like a tremendous amount of pressure. I don't think I slept that entire month that I was there, but um I did come back and I did get hired. So
0: it was worth it. Amazing. You wrote it, you know, well over a year ago, a year and a half ago. Are there any sort of lasting images uh, for you from the final piece?
2: I mean, just the look on Mello's face when he would just look so miserable. Like, every time people talk about this kid, I always think of that. Like, you rarely, he's rarely, rarely afforded agency, both in terms of voice and of, like, actual physical decisions he's making. And I just always think of like what I saw when the cameras were off. Like there was a tension in the piece between like cameras on, cameras off. And I wanted to make that very clear that when cameras were on, people were getting a very different view of what happened when cameras were off. And I just needed people to see how this boy looked when the cameras were off. And I think a lot of people did see that and sort of see him as a tragic figure. And I mean, I'll just never forget how low he looked because Melo's known as being like, fun and bouncy and loud. And like, I just didn't see any of that.
0: Wow. I, I should have started off by telling everybody that they definitely need to go uh, check that article out. So I will reiterate that at this point. <laughs> that it was Thank a you. really fantastic piece. Um, and I want to transition to the next piece because um, the next piece that I wrote, I read, I read them back to back, which I think was really fascinating. And the next piece is the rise of the next Attentacupo. So um the first one obviously was about Lamello, younger brother of Lonzo, and then the next one that I read right afterwards was about um Alex, younger brother of Giannis. And as I was reading it, I couldn't help but see some recurring themes, some similarities between these two younger brothers um but also just like stark differences between who they are and how their families operate I guess um so I'm wondering if you were thinking about that as you were writing this piece or you know did you realize that you were doing that
2: yeah that's you know what I really appreciate that because I I so was I even went back and looked at my Lithuania journals um because like I'm a journaler and um I just kind of thought, like, wow, this is so different. Like, this family is everything that LeVar and BBB wanted to be, but just aren't. They just have a different personality. And Lonzo and Melo are not as close as Alex and Giannis. And I just thought there was a lot of synergy between the two stories. But, of course, like, you want to you, you never want to tell the same story twice. And so I thought it was fascinating that this dad was absent. And it's so that in itself is like a complete departure, but there, there were enough similarities to where I drew on that experience. And I was like, Hmm, there's the same amount of pressure on Alex, I think than uh, LaMelo, but there is. Way more complexity with Alex and way more anxiety inside of Alex. Nobody has really cracked the inside of Mellow because he won't be cracked and he won't talk about and he can't because his dad has him on a leash and so he doesn't say anything. And if he does, he is just like, "I want to be the number one pick. I just want to be great." Nobody has really, um, nobody knows how Mellow really feels inside about all this. Versus, I was really fortunate to get to, you know, the interior of Alex to see that he doubts himself, and he doubts whether he can do this, but he also wants it really bad. And so it's, it's complicated.
0: Yeah, and the, the family dynamics were so uh, interesting, because, you know, for the the Ball family, it was, you know, they were, they were already, you know, established in their California neighborhood, the kids were going to these well known schools, they were, you know, already, you know, performing at a high level. And then LeVar kind of took them off in a different and unexpected direction. And then on the other hand, you have the Antetokounmpo family, you know, starting, you know, in Greece, and, you know, trying to get their dream of, you know, coming to America to be basketball players. And so trying to having been from a different part of the world to try to come in and, and fit in. So that that, stu- that kind of just struck me as a juxtaposition there too, just between trying to fit in and then trying to also carve your own path and how those turned out differently.
1: <laughs>
0: yeah. I mean,
2: you're so right. And I think agency is like a theme of both of them. Like whose dream really is it? I, I think it's unclear.
0: What are some lasting impressions for you about the Antetokounmpo um, piece?
2: I think that Giannis is so much more tender and complex and warm than and, and brilliant than giving credit for. It, it does kind of bother me when people just talk about his athleticism when there's so many other talents that he has and I wanted to show a different side of him. I think another thing I realized with Alex, and I realized this you know, in other stories too, but particularly this one is how hard it is to be a young person trying to play sports in America anywhere, really. But I think it's very hard to embark on the path that he's embarking on. And there's a lot of pressure on these kids. And, you know, a lot of times we're unsure why they want to make it, what this does to them means to them. And um, I just think it's really cool though, that he's in a family where the metrics for success are different they, they want him to go to the NBA, but they, he doesn't need to go to the NBA. Like in their family, he needs to work hard, be kind, and be respectful. And those are the, the metrics of success. So I kind of w- left with the feeling that this is, I mean, this is a real family. You know, this is what brotherhood is about.
0: Well, I've monopolized this
1: all yes. step back. I so like Cassidy. I'm like fascinated. So I'm totally fine with it. <laughs> um, wow. Um. Yeah. Those, that brother team is, they fascinate me for sure. So I want to talk a little bit about Nassir little and is learning the hard way. Your piece about the Portland trailblazers rookie. What was so interesting about him that made you want to profile him?
2: Well, I think in this instance, I got very lucky because back when I pitched it in the summer, he was just like the number three prospect or whatever. And he was about to, you know, I knew he was a one and done. So I was like, okay, I'm never going to get to the Duke guys. Access is probably terrible. Everyone's going to be rushing to profile Zion. I'm going to do it differently. I'm going to profile him. Then And then I wasn't able to interview him till like November because UNC has this policy where they don't let freshmen talk during preseason. So it's like, great, I have to wait. But then it ended up working in my favor because he ended up struggling so much and not really playing a whole lot. And so then the story became way more interesting. And so, I, I mean, I wanted to profile him for so many reasons. Like, what do you do when the plan – when the actuality of the plan looks different than what you thought it was? What do you do when you took a risk and it might not have gone the right way? What do you do? And like, you might not make the NBA the way that you want to, you know, when you're not averaging 25 points a game, when you're coming off the bench and you're supposed to be a star and everyone's like, what's happening? What's wrong with you? I just found all those things
1: way more fascinating. Yeah, I think it is, it, I think all of those things can make someone uh, relate to him a lot easier because I think everybody's had one of those moments where they were like, ah, maybe this isn't right. But I think I'm wondering kind of, do you think Portland's going to be a place that he thrives with the culture that the Blazers have built here?
2: I do. I feel like he's in a good position. I think that, first of all, he is one of the most mature athletes I've ever spoken to. You know, I mean, I was really astounded by his maturity. He wants to work hard. He does not feel he's entitled to anything. I know after that season, he's probably way more motivated than he was then because it was, I mean, it was so hard going through it. I don't think he's walking into this feeling entitled. I think that he's going to put his head down and he's going to work. And I think his game is better suited for the pros than it was in college. He's such an up and down player and like Roy's system was just not for him. Like he was just not good in the, not as good, I think, in the half court set that he could be at the spacing and the pacing of an NBA game. So I think he'll be good, but it's not going to happen right away. Um, but he could learn a lot from the players there.
1: Do you have a main takeaway about him as a person besides his maturity?
2: I think he's learning what a lot of players, uh, would behoove to find out as soon as possible, which is that, um, just because you are on highlight tapes and you have athleticism and you're being praised does not mean you actually have transferable skills to play at the highest levels of the game. He was learning how to play defense in his first year of college. So the AAU system that he and so many of these young players are a part of are not teaching fundamentals of help defense. So there were so many scenes like in the story and just in practice every day where he's like, I literally don't know what, I don't know what to do. Like, I don't know where to go because he's never had to play defense before. And so it just kind of made me think like, how many Nas Littles are there out there that are in for, you know, get all the glory early and then, once they get to college, they're suddenly behind because they they haven't focused on the fundamentals.
1: That's interesting. Do you, are there any other players that you that you uh, have followed at all that you kind of feel like also may be missed out on certain elements from playing up in, their way up through AU?
2: I'm trying to think. I've profiled a lot of high school kids. Um, I don't know I think I think it's a common theme like I profiled Jalen Green fantastic player fantastic Mm -hmm. person comes from a great family as does Nas again like so much hype so young um, incredible athleticism and he could shoot but um, yeah like defense is never the thing you know, defense is never the priority. And so, um, you know, I'm not, I'm not a basketball coach. I mean, I was actually for four years when I was, uh, working at the OC register to make ends meet because journalism, uh, circa 2014, 15, 16. But, um, no, I think, you know, my job is to explore kind of the struggles that people go through. It's not all struggles, but it's just like, there's a much more interesting, complex, real journey underneath big stats and big highlight plays. And I think a lot of people look at young people and they're very dismissive of them. They, they don't really understand the pressures these kids are under. They don't really care to listen to their story. But if you really sit down and talk with these people, they have a lot to say.
1: You do quite a bit of writing about kind of younger players before they make it big or get into the professional leagues. Uh, What do you like about learning about those early years of these young athletes?
2: I just think it's so exciting. It's so um, like, there's something very interesting to me about somebody about to set sail on their career. Like I think, It's also fascinating to saying goodbye to a career because it's also like saying goodbye to an identity that you've been your whole life. I don't really find the middle of one's career as fruitful, but certainly the beginning is the most exciting to me because they're about to go on this journey and we don't know how it'll go. It might not go well. They might ride the bench. They might never make it. They might get hurt. They might fizzle out. I just think it's interesting also how excited they are to talk. I think sometimes (laughs) when I talk to pros, they're just like, can we get this over with? but the kids are like oh my god like i'm ready you know it's like it's, it's, my, it's my moment and um some of them can be you know too arrogant but there is a childlike excitement and you can tell that they're just like oh my god bleacher report um, <laughs> and so i just i just like their excitement it's awesome
1: have you ever uh gone back and followed up with any players later kind of after they've they've been in a league for a little bit Well,
2: I am doing a follow-up story with one right now, uh, an NBA story, and I have pitched the LaMelo in Australia sequel. So maybe, maybe that'll happen. I don't know. I'm sure the family won't let me go like near them, but (laughs) we'll see.
1: (laughs) (laughs) So you just had an article come out today slash this week for those who are listening. Um, Uh, who gonna check the Las Vegas Aces? And you said today that you had a lot of stories that didn't make it into this piece. Um, And there were a lot of great stories in the piece. So I'm wondering if you could give us a taste of what maybe didn't make it in.
2: Oh my Jesus. I... like there's so many i can't even tell you like i definitely shed some tears over the last week at what was cut i you know i know i have a thick skin but you know i killed like 80 darlings um there were some funny moments with bill like uh he <laughs> we were we were sitting over breakfast and um he orders like this large order and then she comes back with his coffee and he goes would you mind spilling spilling that on this and he points to my recorder on the table <laughs> <laughs> it was so funny like it was so like also terrifying but it was so funny to me like I couldn't get over it so I definitely had that in my first three drafts but it was cut at the end so that one actually broke my heart um what else what else um hmm. I think there was just a lot of scenes that um like that might've been, oh, there's one at the airport. Uh, Bill's luggage got run over. We like all of a sudden <laughs> he's in the street yelling and everyone's like, it, it's literally 4am. Like nothing happened. Why is he, yell-? you know, we're not on the court. And apparently like somebody ran over his luggage. So that was like struggle defined, um, <laughs> literally in the right before the Delta terminal. <laughs> um, so that got cut. And then, uh, God, there was just, like, the eyelashes scene was so funny with with G. It And originally it was, like, a whole paragraph, but then it was condensed to a sentence. But, you know, everyone's like, come on, lashes, like, kill it, girl. And it was just so cute and funny. And, and Liz was like, oh, my God, she has the butterfly uh, lashes. And everyone's like, what's a butterfly lash? And then Liz, like, takes, uh, like, her lash to her um, lips, and she's, like, demonstrating, like, butterfly kiss and everyone is just like so lost and she's like you guys i'm a white girl at heart like come on like whatever so it's just it was very funny like it's just little moments like that when you're around them all the time they they say really funny things or there are a lot of times you know liz i don't get paid enough for this you know just like saying that out loud or her saying to the gm i'm sorry i said uh on national tv but at least i didn't say you know so there's just like a million lines are like rusha brown um you know she was she had some lotion and plum was like let me get some and then she was like put some on me and rusha's like why and she's like because i don't want it to get on my hands because i'm about to shoot so like it's just little details (laughs) like that like the perfectionist so anyways i could go on and on and on uh definitely like broke my heart like not being able to include all the anecdotes
1: (laughs) Uh, i think one of the things that I took away from it, because it's it's very hard for us Blazer fans to like the Lambeer. But <laughs> <laughs> for the last few years, I, I know Tara and I have both been warming up to him a little bit. And this story solidified that I think we kind of love him a little bit. I know. Um, can you just speak a little bit more about your experience getting to know him? Because it, it seems like such an interesting dynamic for him.
2: Yeah, like he will try to spill coffee on your thing. And he hates, (laughs) literally hates media. But he, like, everyone just called him an asshole so many times. But it was, like, an asshole that we love, you know? It was just, (laughs) like, he will do anything for this team. And they they love him. Like, they wear his shirts all the time. And he's just, like, he's not what you think he is. Like, yes, he can be a jerk. But he's not, like... He's not screaming every second. I think there's just like this image of him just like yelling every second. It's just not true. He's really, he's really tender. And one thing that I went on about in my draft that got cut was he's able to let things go. Like basketball, he's not one of those people that played and wears their heart on their sleeve and they're upset about the game hours after, like the way Liz is. Like, he lets it go. Like when the buzzer is over, it's over. Like he's not stressed about it. Like it doesn't upset him. And I think that was the coolest part. Like instead of being like, Plum, you need to make a f***ing shot, get it together. He's just like, go home. And I think that's one thing that really surprised me about him is how calm and patient he is. Because I was just, after watching the 30 for 30, I was just expecting him to be like, f- off my court. Like, why are you here? And like, there were times where he was like, I don't, I, you know, do you trust? He said to the media, but do you trust her? Like all this stuff, you know, It's not like I was just waltzing in there and everyone was happy that I was there. You know, he didn't, he doesn't like media, but I think for the people in his world, he will do anything for, and he, he loves this team.
0: I have a, a a question. Um, you talked about, you know, the, the, the scene like with the eyelashes and everybody just kind of hanging around laughing and joking together. Um, what kind of differences have you noticed between, um, you know, hanging out with a woman's team and hanging out with a men's team or have you noticed differences?
2: Mm, I think, I mean, there's certain things that are just not going to happen to me when I'm in men's circles, like Liz and so I profiled Liz last year. And while we were eating lunch last year, we discovered that we have the same Dior lip gloss. And it was a glorious moment. And uh, (laughs) I think of her every time I put it on, I'm just like, oh, my God, like, I can't. That's not going to happen, obviously, with the men's teams. But barring that, I think it's just different. Like, with the men, I am treated with, I mean, okay, I'm not making sense. There have been some pretty awful moments in my career where I've been treated terribly by men in this field, whether it's a player or whatever. But there have also been tons of times where I'm treated with utter respect, but there's just not a complete comfortability that there would be when it's all women. There was just an intimacy with this group that just felt completely comfortable. And even if it was a men's team and they treated me with exact same respect, exact same whatever, there's just a comfortability there that just would not be there with men. It just wouldn't. It's just, it's the same, but it's different. And I think it's, they were kind of like, wow, like a woman journalist coming to, you know, profile us. And, you know, Liz vouched for me, like I know her, you know, and I think there was just like, I don't know, there's just a comfort there. And there's, There's certain things that you can talk about. Like there's a line was said in there about like I want to have babies. Well, we talked about these things. And and that's not necessarily the conversation that I'm gonna have with a men's player, you know? So I don't know. And I'm care I'm careful about it because I never wanna act like, oh, I can't handle the men's stuff, because I absolutely can. It's just a different it's just a different vibe. It's a different experience. But I think Bill is so quick to say there's no difference between men and women. You know, he's like, to me, I just, I love, you know, I'm here for basketball. They're ballers. So he doesn't see any difference between the two games. But yeah, you know, as a reporter, it's it's a bit different.
0: So we should probably r- wrap it up here. Um, I have one more question about kind of your uh, work as a storyteller. Um, so, you know, when I read your work, it's interesting because, you're in it but you're not in it so like you're clearly writing from close observation but you don't really become a part of the story and I I, I'm wondering if that is um you know something that you do on purpose that how important it is to you um like how much you're a part of the story or not a part of the story yeah thank you
2: for that question it's something I think about a lot um Lithuania was the only story I was in the story. And that wasn't my choice. My editor was like, you need to be in the story. You were there. And that was a very specific function, which was like, I'm, I'm letting you all know that I'm seeing something that nobody else is seeing. So that was like a very different purpose. But the reason why other than that, I don't do it is just because like, I never want the story to be about me. Like, I never... I mean, I just don't like maybe one day, like I could publish a memoir about the stories behind the stories. But as far as like my actual stories, it's I feel it's a distraction. Like it annoys me when I see writers say I, I am watching him in the backyard and blah, blah, blah. It's It's like a weird flex. It distracts from the scene. Like you being there doesn't do anything like it doesn't add anything to the setting. In fact, it's weird. It's like, why I don't care about you. Like, who are you? You know? And I think so many writers are trying to like show that they're great and like get a big following and have access that I, sometimes it comes off as a flex. And there are other writers who don't use the eye for that purpose. They just, they use it effectively. It's just a standard method of storytelling that you see in the New York or anywhere else. Not because the writer has this like pompous attitude. It's just that's what they've been taught. It's a very classic thing, but I just personally don't feel like I belong in there. And maybe I'll change. Maybe in a couple of years, I'll start being in there. but i just I just like don't see the purpose at
0: all. So I lied. I have another question. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> um, who are some of the writers that you admire and some of the people who have mentored you along the way?
2: Oh my gosh. such a long list. i the okay, so the writers I admire. Wright Thompson, um, Gary Smith, um, Jonathan Abrams, um, Jeff Perlman, who is one of my big mentors, um, Ramona Shoburn, Um, But then I have a whole other like list that's not sports writing. So I I learn most of my writing through non sports writing, and it's it's Toni Morrison, Louise Erdrich, Joan Didion um, books like evicted Matthew Desmond, uh, ghetto side by Jill Levy. Like these are books that taught me how to write, um, mentors, Christina Tapper, like I mentioned earlier, I owe so much of my career to her. Uh, This woman gave me a chance. She was like, I believe in you. Um, Jeff, (laughs) I owe so much to Jeff. Uh, you know, I just DM'd him one day when he moved to Orange County and I had just started at the register. And um, I was like, you're you're my favorite writer. Like, can we please talk? And um, he ended up being like, he's like family. I mean, he's he's just done so much for me. I can't even explain. I'm so grateful. And then uh, my current editors at Bleacher, um, Jake Leonard, Elliot Ponnell, Ian Blair. I'm just so grateful for them. And um, yeah, there's just been so many people... Matt Sullivan there. There's been a lot of people that's helped me. And it it does bother me when like writers don't acknowledge people who have helped them because like as much as writing can feel like a solitary activity, it's not. Um, You have people in the trenches there with you. And like, I know there's a lot of people that helped me get here and I would be remiss to not give them credit because there's so many times where I'm in my own head. I'm like, oh, this piece sucks. And like, they're the ones that bring me
0: out of that. Very cool. Cassidy, do you have any more questions?
1: I'm wondering, uh, just wondering, uh, how can everyone find your work?
0: Oh, my gosh. Well, I spent a lot of
2: time on my website. <laughs> so that would be amazing if they could visit it, mirinfader.com. Very simple. Um, my Twitter, which I'm getting better at, uh, just nerdy writing quotes and coffee shop and cookie musings, um, and basketball, um, which is just at mirror and fader. So yeah, I would love it if people could check out my stuff.
0: Did you say cookies? Cause that's oh, my favorite I, yeah. food.
2: I'm um, literally cookies are my superpower. Like when people are like, how do you, how do you write? I'm like, listen, if I didn't have these cookies, I probably wouldn't get through my deadlines. It's a really bad habit, but it, um, that's, that's my motivator. Hey,
0: you do what you got to do. Yeah. You like,
2: do what you got to do.
1: What is you are your great kind of cookie?
2: Oh man. Okay. Well, I, I'm kind of like basic, like chocolate chip is like classic. And my uncle makes me chocolate chip cookies. He's like a second dad to me. Yeah. And he puts these like giant chips. It's, it's kind of everything. But second, I'm like any type of peanut butter. Like I am obsessed with peanut butter. So like peanut butter cookies are just life.
0: Oh, I love peanut butter cookies. Somebody gave me one at work today. It was like oh. – it made, it made my whole week. I ran him to him in That's the so elevator jealous. and he had like a whole plate full of cookies and I was like, oh my god, those look amazing. And he was like, here, you want one? And I was like, oh, it was my favorite kind of peanut butter, the ones that have like very little if no flour of them at all. So it's basically like just peanut butter and they're so oh, good.
1: I'm okay, so we'll jealous. have to do a
0: whole nother podcast about um, cookies. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I'm okay. We want to thank you so much for joining us today. That was a fascinating discussion, and um, to remind everybody to go to your website to read more stories because there's a huge variety of them. I mean, a couple that we didn't even talk about that I found really far- fascinating. The one about Marcus Smart was really good. Um, the one about Andrea, um, I can't remember her last name, but she's Either a trans- yeah, yeah, she's a transgender athlete, and her story. Just so many good things. So, um, you know, it's summertime. We all need to get caught up on our reading and maybe you don't have a beach book, but you have a, you know, some long forms you want to catch up on. I would strongly suggest everybody check out your stuff because it's really great.
2: (laughs) Uh, Easy to read. I really appreciate that so much.
0: So that's going to do it for this week's Hoops and Talks podcast. Don't forget to follow the podcast on Twitter at Hoops and Talks and to subscribe to the show uh, in the Blazer's Edge podcast feed. You can find that on whatever platform you use to get your um, podcasts. We love email, so send us an email with your icebreaker ideas and cookie recipes (laughs) (laughs) or questions or whatever else you want us to know. Our email is hoopsandtalks at gmail.com. You can find me at TCB Biggs on Twitter and you can find Cassidy at Cassidy Gemmet on Twitter. And again, you can also follow Mirn Fader or find her uh, on, her work on her website MirenFader.com. Mirin, thank you so much for joining us. It was fascinating and um, hopefully we'll be able to talk to you again someday.
2: Yes, I enjoyed this anytime. Thank you.